And church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17 is our text for today. Genesis chapter 17. The title of our message is Life in God's Covenant. I'm going to read from God's Word. You follow along. Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He was eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that that very day, as God had said to them. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Heavenly Father, would you teach us from your word? Would you open up our hearts and minds to hear and receive what you want to teach us today? Thank you for your unchanging word. Impress its truth upon our hearts right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
A couple of weeks ago, we studied Genesis 15, and we saw that God made a covenant with Abram. Do you remember that word, covenant? We talked about what that means. A simple way to think about a covenant is a relationship that's built on promises. A relationship that's built on promises. Marriage is a covenant. Um, and, uh, and so, covenant. Marriage, uh, a relationship built on promises. We saw that Abram, back in chapter 15, believed God. He believed God's promises. And God counted that to Abram as righteousness. In other words, God entered into covenant relationship with Abram based on his, God's promises, and Abram's faith in God's promises, not because or through Abram's works. It wasn't because Abram did good works. It was because he believed God and God counted that to him as righteousness. Now, last week we saw in chapter 16 that Abram's faith is not perfect faith. But the good news is that God fulfilling his covenant is not dependent on Abram having perfect faith, but on God fulfilling his promises, God remaining faithful to his promises. Now, today, as we look at Genesis 17, we'll learn more about what life in the covenant looks like. What's it look like to live in covenant relationship with God? Once we enter into covenant with God by his grace through our faith, which you learned back in chapter 15, what we see in chapter 17 is that our lives are now marked by obedience to God. And yet, church family, once again, even though we're going to talk about our, our obligation and our privilege of living in obedience to God, once again we'll see that God's grace is on display even in this passage in chapter 17 as God describes his covenant in terms which can only be true if his grace is the foundation of his relationship with us, not our obedience as the foundation of, our, of his relationship with us. Church, covenant relationship with God is founded on God's grace and is displayed through our obedience. Covenant relationship with God is founded, the basis for it is the grace of God, and then it's displayed. What comes from that is works of obedience, a life of obedience to God. Now, just set the context again for our passage. We want to remember that God, at this point in the story of the Bible, has, has created a, a good and perfect world. God's enemy, Satan, tempted humans to rebel against God, which they did. And this resulted in sin, which meant that the relationship between humans and God was broken. But God already had a plan in place to bring sinners back into fellowship with him. And that plan centered on a promise to send a man who was born of woman who would destroy the enemy, who would destroy that serpent. And so we're looking for this promised son as we move through the pages of Genesis and through the pages of the Bible. In Genesis 12, God focuses the story in on one man named Abram who was married to Sarai. And God makes Abram the series of promises, perhaps, and especially for um, our context today, for our chapter today, perhaps the most significant is the promise of a son. The problem is that Sarai is barren. And at this point in their lives, the other problem is that they're both really old. I think it's okay for me to say that if you're 100 years old, you're really old, okay? Um, I know if I was 100 years old, I wouldn't be offended if somebody said you're really old. I would take that as a compliment. I made it to 100, right? They are really old, um, especially in, when it comes to bearing children. Now, because of that, um, Sarai, we saw in chapter 16, concocts this plan, steps outside of God's will for their lives, uh, Abram goes along with it. Abram has a child by their maid, by Sarai's maidservant, Hagar, and his name is Ishmael. So that's where we see this Ishmael um, child here in Genesis chapter 17. But Ishmael is not the promised son. 
And remember, God is doing this. He's making these promises. He's moving history toward this promised son so that he can provide a way for humans who, because of the fall in Genesis 3, should be separated from God forever. He's do, God is doing this so that we can be put back into a right relationship with God forever. In chapter 17 of Genesis, God confirms the covenant that he made with Abram back in chapter 15, and he teaches us what it means to live in covenant with God. I want to share with you four truths uh, from Genesis 17, um, and we're not going to be able to hit on every verse, but that's okay. But I want to share with you four truths from uh, this passage um, about life in God's covenant. The first is this, church family. God rightly expects obedience from his covenant people. God rightly expects obedience from his covenant people. You see the word covenant used 13 times in Genesis 17. So we know from that repetition that uh, this chapter is about God's covenant with uh, Abraham and then with people, those who belong to him. But we also see that obedience is a central theme in this passage. And we can see that kind of with the structure. We see obedience highlighted in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end of this chapter. So we're going to kind of scan from beginning to end of chapter 17 for just a moment. Notice what God says in verse 1. I am God Almighty. Walk before me, be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. So at the beginning, right there at the beginning of the chapter, verses, um, in verse 1, we see God telling Abram to live in obedience to him, to God. Then if you skip to the middle, verses 9 through 14, we see God give Abram a specific command to obey. And that command is the command to circumcise all the males in his household. And then at the end of the chapter, if we go to the end, we see that Abram chooses to obey God's command. Verse 23 tells us that Abram did as God had said to him. He does what God tells him to do. And so in the context of covenant relationship, which is what chapter 17 is all about, we see, um, we see Abram. Uh, God tell Abram he needs to live a life of obedience. We see God give Abram a specific command to obey. And then we close out the chapter with Abram obeying that specific command. Church, that is as clear a picture as we can get of what it looks like to live in covenant relationship with God. When we live in relationship with God, we live in obedience to God. God calls the shots. God makes the rules in our lives. And it's right for him to do that. It's right for him to tell us what to do because he is, what did he call himself? God Almighty. El Shaddai. God Almighty. That's the name that God gave him, gave himself in verse 1. I am God Almighty. Friends, God doesn't expect obedience from us because he is some power-hungry autocrat. He expects obedience from us because he is the all-powerful God who created the heavens and the earth. It is right that he would expect his people to live in obedience to him. Now remember, entrance into God's covenant is not based on our obedience. We cannot forget Genesis chapter 15, especially chapter 15 verse 6, as we talk about life in the covenant in chapter 17. Genesis 15, 6. Abram believed the promises of God, and God counted his faith to him as righteousness, not his good works. Abram has already been counted righteous before he does this act of obedience. But once we place our faith in God's promises and enter into covenant relationship with God, then our lives are to be filled with good works. 
towards God. We are to live in obedience to God's command. Notice how Paul, writing in the New Testament, lays out this truth that salvation, that is covenant relationship with God, is based on good works, excuse me, is based on faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, based on grace, that then leads to good works. It's not based on those good works, but it does result in good works. Paul writes to Titus in Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is Paul describing entrance into covenant relationship with God. It is all about what Jesus has done for us to rescue us from our sin and we simply believe in what he has done it's not by our works but then i want you to listen to the very next verse in titus chapter 3 paul says the saying is trustworthy and i want you to insist on these things that is insist on salvation by grace through faith in the lord jesus so that those who have believed in god may be careful to devote themselves to good works you see that? So that we would be, as people who are in covenant relationship with God, we would be careful to give ourselves over to life of good works. A life lived in obedience to God. And so we see from Old Testament to New Testament, from Abrahamic covenant to the New Covenant, God rightly expects obedience from His covenant people. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if we believed in Jesus for salvation and that way entered into covenant relationship with God, it will be evident in how we live our lives. The good works don't save us, but the good works aren't optional. Faith in Jesus will lead to a life that is filled with obedience to God. Even when that obedience is painful or inconvenient, as it very obviously was for Abram, and his household in this passage of Scripture. As the Apostle John wrote, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. So I just want to ask you, Christian, are you living in obedience to God? Are you living in obedience to God? Is following God and His Word, His commands, His way of living, is that a priority for you? Is it a priority for me? Second thing we learn about life in God's covenant is this. God's covenant, uh, excuse me, God intentionally includes the nations in His covenant people. God intentionally includes the nations in His covenant people. God requires obedience, we see that. And God intentionally includes the nations in his covenant people. Often when we think about God's covenant, we think about God's covenant with Abraham, we really just think about the people of Israel who came from Abraham. They get most of the attention in the Old Testament, and rightfully so, because it was from Israel, that nation of Israel, that people, that the Messiah, the promised son of Genesis 3, would come. But from the beginning of God's covenant with Abram, which turned into God's covenant with Israel, we see that God's heart was for all the nations of the world. And we see this very clearly through a name change. In verses 2 through 6, 
We see God promise to multiply Abram and make him fruitful, which is language that goes back to God's original plan for humanity. We see grace right there that Abram, that humans are getting to participate in God's original design for them, even though they had rebelled against God. Be fruitful and multiply. But we also learn that God is going to make Abram not merely the father of many people, all belonging to the same nation, but the father of many people who belong to many different nations. And God emphasizes this part of the covenant by changing his name. Not God's name, Abram's name. Verse 3 says that Abram fell on his face, which is the right posture, when the Lord God Almighty appears to you and speaks to you. And then God says in verses 4 through 6, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Now the name Abram, his original name means exalted father. The name Abraham means father of a multitude. And we know from God's description of that here that that multitude would include many nations. Abram, Abram, now Abraham, will be the father of many nations. That means people from many nations will call Abraham their father. And we even see God's heart for the nations. If we were to go move ahead in the chapter to God's command of circumcision, we see God's heart for the nations and the fact that his instructions there include both Abraham's biological family members and foreigners who belong to Abraham's household. Even in that act of obedience, we see that God was including not just one biological people group, but really anyone who would enter into covenant relationship with the Lord. All the nations. Now, you might be wondering what the nations has to do with you living life in God's covenant. I told you we're going to talk about what's it look like to live life in God's covenant. You say, well, that's, that's great, the nations, but what, is, what in the world does that have to do with me? Friend, it has everything to do with us living life in the covenant of God. First, our only hope of being included in God's covenant relationship with people is for God to include the nations in his salvation plan. We are the beneficiaries of God having a heart for the nations because, folks, we are the nations. We are a part of the nations that God has opened up the way of salvation to. And so so just in the fact that we are included in God's covenant through faith in Jesus means we ought to be thankful that God um, has a heart for the nations. But secondly, because God has a heart for the nations, living in covenant relationship with God means that we too will have a heart for the nations. I want you to consider the final marching orders of King Jesus before he returned to heaven. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. Friends, we are to love all the peoples of the world. And we are to follow in our master's footsteps, denying ourselves so that the good news of salvation, the good news of the new covenant of Christ can reach every nation on this planet, every people group, every soul who needs the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might be thinking that I'm reading too much into these verses in Genesis 17. You might be thinking, man, Zach just really want to talk about the nations and missions today. And he's just kind of squeezing that into Genesis 17. No, I, that's not where this is coming from. Though I do love talking about missions and the nations. I'm just seeking to be, simple, uh, be, be faithful to, to the text. 
Is there actually a connection here to the great commission given by Jesus? I think so. I think the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, believed that there absolutely was. In Romans chapter 4, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 17 verse 5 as support for the belief that people from every nation can be saved through faith in Jesus. He writes in Romans 4, 16-17, That is why it, that's the promises of God, depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, there he's talking about the Jew, the biological descendant of Abram, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. You see what he did? Paul, Romans 4, quoting Genesis 17, verse 5. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And so Paul makes a direct connection between the nations being able to be saved through faith in Jesus to Genesis chapter 17, verse 5, with God saying, I'm going to make you, Abraham, the father of a multitude of nations. And then... We just have to turn over a few chapters, Genesis, Romans chapter 10, Paul says this, For everyone, right, the nations, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so do you see Paul's logic? If God promised that the covenant with Abraham would include the nations then it makes sense that the nations can receive salvation through faith in Jesus. And if the nations can receive salvation through faith in Jesus, then those who know this good news must go and tell them. Church, covenant relationship with God is for anyone, anywhere, who will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Genesis 17, interpreted in the light of all of God's Word, is teaching us that if we are a part of God's covenant people, then we will have a heart for all the peoples of the world, and we will participate in reaching those nations with the new covenant of Christ, with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus. God intentionally includes the nations in His covenant people, and so the nations then become a part, a very central part, of life lived in God's covenant. Third thing that we learn about life in God's covenant is this. Church family, God graciously promises everlasting relationship with His covenant people. God graciously promises everlasting relationship with His covenant people. Obedience to God, the nations are part of life in God's covenant, and an everlasting relationship, part of life in God's covenant. Verses 7 and 8, God states His covenant promises toward Abraham in three parts. Offering, land, uh, excuse me, not offering, offspring. Offspring, land, and relationship. Offspring, land, and relationship. He said, and I will establish, this is verse 7 and 8, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. We see the promise of offspring. We see the promise of land. We see the promise of relationship. Now, you might be thinking, Zach, I, I see the word offspring used there. I see the word land used there, but I don't really see the word relationship used there. Where, where are you getting that from? Well, it's true. We don't see the word relationship, but relationship is implied by two incredible phrases. Look at the end of verse 7 and then the end of verse 8. 
The end of verse 7 says, To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And the end of verse 8 says, And I will be their God. Listen, that is God's way of saying, I will live in relationship with them. They will live in relationship with me. I will be their God. That's covenant relationship language right there. And friends, that's good news because that's exactly what we lost in the Garden of Eden. When Adam rebelled against God, Adam and Eve lost fellowship with God, where they would now be rejected by God forever. They were kicked out of his kingdom. But God is here graciously promising to put humans back in relationship with him. And it's not just relationship, it's everlasting relationship. It's an everlasting relationship. Three times in this passage, God describes his covenant as an everlasting covenant. Verse 7, we see that. Verse 13, we see that. Verse 19, we see that. Everlasting covenant. Church, this word everlasting reminds us of what we learned back in chapter 15 when God first cut that covenant with Abraham. The covenant depends on God's promise, not our obedience. The covenant is a covenant of grace. Yes, again, chapter 17 is clearly revealing to us that life in God's covenant means a life lived in obedience to God. But friends... Here's where the rest and the peace and the joy of living in covenant relationship with God comes from. Yes, we must obey the Lord. He calls us to that. But the permanence of the covenant is not dependent upon our ability to perfectly obey God. Because if it is, we would never be in everlasting relationship with God. In other words, if the covenant only lasted as long as our obedience, then the covenant would be very short-lived because it would end as soon as we fail to obey God. And, friends, we fail quite often. It's called sin. And even as followers of Christ, we don't obey God perfectly. But God says that this is an everlasting covenant. It never ends. God remains in relationship with his covenant people forever, which means it depends upon his grace, his choice to love us and save us and keep us in relationship to him, with him, even though we don't deserve it. We see this everlasting nature of the covenant through the word everlasting, but we also see the everlasting nature of this covenant through the sign of the covenant that God gives to Abraham in uh, verses 9 through 14, which is circumcision. And here's how we see everlasting nature uh, symbolized there. The permanence of that act. What I mean by that is that circumcision can't be undone. The permanence of that act. The permanence would have been a reminder of the permanence of God's covenant. We see that very clearly stated. Verse 13. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. That's verse 13. But not only would it have reminded them of the everlasting nature of the covenant, that act would have reminded them that they were to live in obedience to God. It would have served as a reminder that they were to live according to God's command as his covenant people. With the birth of every boy, God's people would be reminded that his covenant relationship with his covenant people lasted forever and that they were to walk in obedience to God. Here's what that means. Here's what that means. When we're seeking to just day-to-day life as God's people in relationship with Him, it means that we strive with every ounce of energy we have through the power of the Holy Spirit in us to live in obedience to God. And when we fail, 
we don't despair, but we run back to the Lord because we have not fallen out of of covenant relationship with Him. That covenant is everlasting. And so because we know that that covenant is sealed and it's secure, our salvation is secure, we don't have to then be scared of God in our disobedience. We run back to the Lord and we find forgiveness at the feet of Jesus. It's not a license to sin, but oh my goodness, what a... What a joy and a peace and a rest that can flood our soul when we find that we have sinned and yet know that God still loves us. That's life in God's covenant. Unfortunately, though, as we read through God's word, we see that God's people separated the physical act of circumcision from the life of obedience that they were supposed to be living. Listen, you read the story of the people of Israel Most of the time, they were good at remembering to perform the sign of the covenant, but most of the time, they were lousy at walking in obedience to God. Their hands could perform a ritual, but their hearts could not love and obey God. And so God promised a new covenant. And in this new covenant, God was going to do what that old covenant could never do. He was going to change their hearts. He was going to change our hearts hearts. He's going to do that through the indwelling of God's spirit. Circumcision was just a sign. What God wanted was faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who could change our hearts, leading them to a life of obedience. And so when Jesus, the promised offspring, came, he inaugurated this new covenant through his death in our place and resurrection from the dead. He does away with the old covenant, which could could never change our hearts, and he establishes the new covenant, which absolutely can transform our hearts. Now, this confused the Jews in the first century. It confused them because they thought obedience to the command of circumcision was the way to have relationship with God. But they had missed the point of Genesis 15 and 17. Faith in God's covenant promises that then leads to a life of obedience was the way to have relationship with God. And that's why we see the Apostle Paul. Hopefully this will help you understand some of the New Testament when you read books like Romans and Galatians, 1 Corinthians, hopefully Colossians. This is why we see the Apostle Paul in those letters arguing over and over in them that it really doesn't matter whether or not someone is circumcised. What matters is whether or not we have believed in Jesus for salvation. We don't need physical surgery by a human. What we need is supernatural heart surgery by God himself, the great physician. That's how we enter into relationship with God. Paul wrote to the Galatians, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And then Paul used circumcision as a metaphor for God's transforming work of salvation when he wrote to the Colossian Christians. He said this, in him, that's in Christ, also you were circumcised. He's using this as a metaphor. With a circumcision made without hands. It's a supernatural one. By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. There's the new covenant. There's the faith in Jesus. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Again. What matters is that our hearts have been transformed by Jesus. That the sin of our hearts has been cut off through the power of the gospel. Circumcision in the Old Testament was to be a reminder of how God's people were supposed to live in obedience to God who made an everlasting covenant with them. But they failed at obeying. And so circumcision ended up being a constant reminder of their sin. Because we see that all throughout the Old Testament. God uses this act as a rebuke in their lives. To say, yeah, you did this act, but you're not living in obedience to me. 
Perhaps we could say it this way. Circumcision was a man-made physical alteration which served as a reminder of our need for a God-made spiritual transformation. And friend, that God-made spiritual transformation would come through the promised offspring of Abraham. We see how all of this ties together. And that promised offspring is the Lord Jesus Christ. And friend, if you haven't believed in Jesus Christ for salvation, you must. It's our only hope of entering into that covenant relationship with God. And when you do believe in Jesus, you can rest assured that he is, he is sealing that relationship as an everlasting relationship. But before we get from Abraham to Jesus, Abraham has to have a son. And it's not the son that came by his and his wife's plan back in chapter 16. It's the promised son. It's the son that comes God's way. And that leads us to the last and final truth I want you to see here. And that's that God patiently forbears with the imperfect faith of his covenant people. Listen, what does life look like in God's covenant? What's it look like for us to live with the Lord in relationship with him each and every day? This is what it looks like. God showing us incredible patience. Why? Because our faith is imperfect. Listen, this won't be the last time we see this truth in Genesis, but I want to at least touch on it here in Genesis 17. Notice in verse 15, God changes Sarai's name to Sarah, which means princess. Why? Because the nations and kings promised to Abram will come through Sarah. God explains this name change in verse 16. He said, I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. But you think about that in light of Genesis chapter 16, what we studied last week. I, I, in this week, I wrote in my Bible, right before verse 15, there's a little, little space there between verse 14 and 15 in my Bible, and I wrote, such grace, and I put an arrow down to this name change for Sarah. Such grace. Why? Sarah had completely disregarded the word of the Lord in chapter 16, and now God is saying, I'm going to change her name. Why? Because I'm going to bless her. What is that? It's the grace of God. She doesn't deserve that. Neither do we deserve any of God's blessings. God patiently forbears with the imperfect faith of his covenant people. What about Abraham? Consider how old he is. Consider how old his wife is. And then when God says, oh, yeah, by the way, you're going to have a son and it's going to be through Sarah. What's he do? Well, he laughs. He laughs at what God says. But then what does God do? God turns right around and reaffirms the covenant. He says, yes, but I will do it. Not, oh, sorry, you laughed, you're out, done, done with you. No, God just immediately reaffirms the covenant. What does that show? God's incredibly patient forbearance with us. Sometimes I like to think about what God's doing, like right now, just randomly. Like, oh, what's God doing right now? We can answer that in a lot of different ways. But, but you know one way we can answer that? He, any second of any day, what's God doing right now? He's being really patient with me. <laughs> He's being really patient with you. God patiently forbears with the imperfect faith of his covenant people. Because he is not, you see, it's not just Sarai or Sarah now. It's not just Abram, now Abraham, who has imperfect faith. It's you and me. Even our faith in the Lord Jesus is not a perfect faith. And yet God's covenant relationship with us remains everlasting. How is that? How could the holy God remain in relationship with imperfect 
people, friends, it's because one of the kings who came from Abraham and Sarah was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And his name would be called Jesus. Since we're talking about names, let's talk about Jesus' name. His name means the one who saves. The one who saves. And he would take God's wrath that we deserved upon himself so that God for, could forgive us all of our sin. And on the basis of his grace poured out through his blood shed on Calvary's cross, he could be our God. Which is what he promised to Abram. I will be their God. He's promising us, I will be your God. Why? Because of what Jesus has done for us. That through Jesus, God did the work of saving. And church, his grace should then lead us into obedient living. And so we can say that covenant relationship with God is founded on God's grace. And church family, it's then displayed to a watching world through lives lived in obedience to him as we rest in the unchanging nature of our relationship with God. In obedience to him as we go to the nations with the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so have you believed in Jesus for salvation? That's the way into relationship with God. And once you are in relationship with God, are you living in obedience to him? In these areas that we've mentioned today and all the other areas of life that God calls us to walk in faithful obedience to Him. If you sense that the Lord is revealing to you today through His Holy Spirit that perhaps you as a Christian are not walking close to Jesus today. There's areas of your life that you've stepped outside. I want to tell you that you have hope because the covenant is everlasting. But you need to confess that to Christ. And by His help, by His power, you need to align that area of your life in conformity with God's standards so that you reflect in the way that you live the grace that God has shown you by bringing you into relationship with Him, the Holy God Almighty. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for Your Word. It contains deep truths, and at the same time, the message is simple. We are sinners. Our relationship with you is broken. But God, you have done everything necessary so that we can be put back in right relationship with you. Father, thank you for the certainty of that relationship. Thank you that it is an everlasting covenant. Thank you that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven through the blood that Jesus shed on Calvary's cross. And God, may that realization of how much grace you have shown us, may it propel us out living lives of faithful obedience to you. So that as others see our good works, as others see the gospel change that has taken place in our lives, so that as the nations see and hear what you have done for us, they too can believe and enter into relationship with you forever. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.